ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Wednesday the 14th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, crisis in Rafah. More than one million Palestinians await possible Israeli invasion. One Australian-born UN aid worker says the situation on the ground is dire. And the long paddle, former Australian army officers kayaking the length of the River Murray to raise funds and awareness of veteran mental health. The people we meet along the way are some of the best that we've got in this country and they're generous um, with their spirit, uh, they're generous uh, with their hospitality and I think that's, it's, it's a significant highlight. We begin today in Victoria where a man has been killed by a storm. Almost a quarter of a million people have been left without power and homes have been lost in bushfires. The farmer died when he was struck by storm debris in Gippsland. Meanwhile, in the west of the state, residents are assessing the damage after fires swept through several districts. But fire authorities say conditions are improving as they try to get on top of two blazes in the Grampians National Park. We'll bring you the latest on the storm damage and power outages shortly. But first, our reporter Angus Randall with the latest on the bushfires. Just save this house. So two houses. Bloody hot. Firefighters go from house to house in Pomonal on the edge of the Grampians in Victoria's west. Volunteer firefighter Steph Farquharson spent yesterday putting out fires in and around the small town. The conditions were pretty hectic. I think the consensus among at least the, the volunteers that I spoke to that were there, it was the, that the conditions were quite scary. And for most of us, we haven't been in those kind of conditions before. At one point, we sort of went up a road, and this was quite early on. There wasn't really any fire activity around. We knew it was close, but it wasn't around. And um, and then, you know, you start seeing a spot fire here, and, and then they start telling everybody to evacuate. So we sort of turned around. By the time we turned around, you could just see there were, there were spot fires everywhere. And it it all just moved very quickly and changed very quickly. The Pomonal fire was sparked by dry lightning during yesterday's catastrophic fire conditions in Western Victoria. It burnt through bushland and quickly threatened the town. Our staging area was the Pomonal Oval. And as the spot fires came down, it became too dangerous to be in some areas and everyone was pulled back to the Oval. And from there, we were actually doing some work defending the Oval. And then from there, once that kind of quietened down. We headed out down the road and my team were looking after a couple of houses, just protecting them from from fire and, and putting out anything that cropped up around that property. Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen hopes fire conditions will ease today. With the favourable weather conditions across the state, that the fire threat is expected to ease. The Pomonal fire has been downgraded to a watch and act, which uh, does mean that there are no emergency warnings remaining statewide. Mark Sleeman is the CEO of Grampians Tourism and a Pomonal resident. He's waiting to hear if his home is destroyed. I had a call this morning saying that it was still standing at one o'clock, but it was um, surrounded by trees on fire. CFA dumped a whole heap of water on it um, at one o'clock. So it was still there at one, but um, anything could happen and, you know, it only takes one ember. So who knows? Um, I'm uh, staying confident and optimistic, but um, the reality is that it's um, 
it's the first house in the in the firing line coming out of the national park. He enacted his fire plan early and spent the night with family in Stall, 20 kilometres northeast. Word is trickling in on what's still standing. Early signs this morning that the Pomonal pub was saved, so we've got it. We've got the watering hole uh, still there, and that's good. Looks like the general store and primary school are also saved. So some early good news coming out for um, for those sort of infrastructure, major infrastructure uh, in the community. Fellow Pomonal resident Philip Vaughan has heard his house has survived. He's devastated for a town he's called home for 25 years. It's not something that is going to be easy to recover from, I wouldn't think. It'll be devastating for a lot of people and as is the case when, when uh, bushfires go through in lots of areas, people... Go both ways, but uh, yeah, they don't want to be part of it again, and uh, the risk again, and and there'll be people who will be stalwarts and and stay forever. So people will make their own decision in in that regard. But yeah, Jesus, there's a lot of damage. The Country Fire Authority says crews are coming up from Melbourne today to assist local firefighters. That's Angus Randall reporting there. A farmer has been killed and thousands of Victorians are still without power after strong winds caused significant damage. Some residents could be left in the dark for days or even weeks and it's feared that repairs to high-voltage transmission lines could take months. But one expert insists the grid is resilient, arguing there have been lessons learned from previous mass outages. Gavin Coote reports. The restaurants on Victoria's Phillip Island were expecting a roaring trade for Valentine's Day. But Bass Coast Deputy Mayor Rochelle Halstead thinks that's unlikely now, with much of the region without power and even phone signal. Their fridges will be full of the oysters and those sorts of things that you, you buy in for these special occasions. And so it's going to be affecting residents, people at home and um, businesses right across the whole of the Shire. Severe storms have caused chaos to the state's energy network, with strong gusts taking down six transmission towers and disrupting the Loy Yang A power station. It left about half a million homes and businesses in the dark yesterday. But since then, power has been restored to many homes, including Marita's in southeast Melbourne. The devastation around here last night was unbelievable. I cannot believe any power networks are back on at all. Like, I've never seen anything like it in 58 years. Massive trees over giant roads and I can't believe there's any power back on at all and I really feel for people, and ours is back on, I can't believe it. I really feel for people where it's not, but they need to understand what went on out there. The weather has been so severe and the damage so significant that energy crews still haven't been able to get to all of the affected sites. Emma Tyner is with United Energy, one of the affected distribution companies. We've got power lines that are down, um, infrastructure poles that have been um, brought down by trees and um, and uh, other debris. So there's a lot of work that needs to be, be done. And it's again raised questions about just how resilient the energy system is. Daniel Westerman, the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator, points out such extreme weather meant damage was unavoidable. We have seen a number of really significant weather events like these in, in recent years. It's not the first time we've seen transmission towers uh, bent in half. And if people, uh, your listeners, have seen some of the, the pictures, they are quite disturbing. Uh, transmission lines uh, folded over and, uh, and lying on the ground. It has happened before in the, in the last couple of years. And I think what we'd say is that those weather events are becoming more and more severe. Roger Dargaville, an energy systems expert with Monash University, argues the fact Victoria avoided a complete system blackout is a testament to its resilience. When they were blown over by the extreme wind, 
there was going to be major implications. That's it's just unavoidable. And it doesn't matter if it would be wind farms, solar farms, or in this case, coal-fired power stations. Now, we did lose 500,000 customers. That's obviously a really bad thing, especially for those customers. But we didn't lose 5 million people off the grid. So that was, I think, a testament to some resilience in the grid still. He thinks most homes could have power again within days, but disruptions could persist for weeks or even months. The transmission and distribution companies are working their butts off to get the, the system back up. They're, they're very clever at rerouting power via different um, pathways to get communities that have been isolated due to transmission failures back up again. But it is dangerous work. It has to be done carefully. And so unfortunately, some um, consumers will be off the grid for, for several days. It will take months to repair the high voltage transmission lines. Uh, and so I mean, we ex- expect continuing disruptions for, for some weeks or months to come. That's energy systems expert Roger Dargaville ending that report from Gavin Coote. You're listening to The World Today and you can listen to us on air, online and also on the ABC Listen app. Well, to Gaza now, and while more than one million people in the southern city of Rafa are bracing for an expected Israeli military invasion, the UN is scrambling to increase aid to the Strip. Israel says there are senior Hamas leaders in Rafa and four battalions that it wants to destroy. The UN's head of the Rafa border crossing is an Australian who has travelled from Adelaide to Gaza to coordinate supplies into the territory. Jodie Clark says it is the most complex humanitarian disaster she has ever worked on. Our reporter, Nicole Johnston, has more. Everybody is desperate for food, clothing, shelter. Everybody now lives on the ground, in the dirt, in the sand, with a piece of nylon or tarpaulin over them. Jodie Clark has been inside Gaza for more than six weeks, in Rafa and is in charge of the Rafa border crossing for the UN. This is the crossing between Egypt and Gaza. Ms Clark also spent more than 20 years with the Australian military and is a logistics specialist. But she says the challenge of Gaza is on a whole other level. Every day I drive to and from the office, sometimes it takes me two hours to drive 10 kilometres to get home because people are putting up tents on the road, on the footpath, and. I can see that the situation that people are living under and it's just deplorable. One of Miss Clark's jobs is to receive Palestinian detainees. These are people who've been taken from Gaza by the Israeli military and interrogated inside Israel. If the military finds no reason to continue to hold them, they're released back into Gaza. Ms Clark says more than 600 people have been sent back. Israel says it's necessary to investigate the detainees for any links to Hamas. It insists the men are not tortured and are treated humanely. Jodie Clark. So they've been detained by the Israeli military. They've been tortured, humiliated, starved. Some of them are lucky enough to be released. The situation that I found them in, they make them wear diapers so that they don't have so many uh, needs for the bathroom. Their hands are are kept cuffed while they're detained. All of them talk about being beaten. They all talk about being kept in stress positions for hours and hours and hours. 
the ABC has approached the Israeli military for a response to these allegations. The UN and aid agencies are now getting emergency supplies into Gaza through two border crossings. At Rafah and at the Kerem Shalom crossing with Israel, Gaza needs thousands of trucks of aid. It's getting just 100 to 200 trucks every day. And Ms Clark says people are looting them. We're in a dire situation. We need police escorts to get the trucks with aid safely to our distribution centres. People are so desperate that we have women and children also involved in the looting, putting obstacles on the road to stop the trucks. They just push beyond their limits. Jody Clark has worked in Iraq, Afghanistan and during the Asian tsunami, but says in Rafa, life has fallen apart. It's almost standing room only. You can't lay down in Rafa anymore because there's so many people there. The whole society has just collapsed. I feel like I'm in the eye of a storm every minute of every day. One of my staff members, 8 o'clock at night, his two brothers and 50 of their family members were killed when a rocket hit their house. And at 8 o'clock the next morning, he was standing beside me at work. That's Jodie Clark there, the UN's head of the Rafa border crossing, as she was speaking to our reporter, Nicole Johnston. Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Matt Common says there's been a slight increase in the number of Australians struggling to pay their mortgage. But he still sees the economy as fairly resilient despite aggressive interest rate rises. The Commonwealth Bank has revealed an 8% fall in its half-year profit to $4.8 billion. Mr Common has also called for flexibility in the right to disconnect debate. Mr Common spoke with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Well, Peter, obviously we're very conscious that many families and households are finding the current economic conditions harder and harder. But as you noted, there's a slight uptick, still well below long-term averages. But importantly, from our perspective, we're uh, available to support our customers, offering to assist and help them through what we recognise is a more challenging year ahead. But is that uptick in arrears and impairments a canary in the coal mine that borrowers really can't take too much more stress? No, I think what it is showing, Peter, as you'd expect, is a higher interest rate environment and you know, higher prices across the economy are certainly having an impact on many uh, family budgets. What sort of things are they cutting back on so they can pay their mortgage? Particularly in discretionary spend, clothing, footwear, we can see that that's reducing. And again, these are all uh, expected consequences of a higher interest rate environment. And of course, the principal objective here is to reduce inflation. And inflation is bad for everyone. How many loans have you had to call in where people have lost their homes? Well, Peter, at this stage, it's still very, very small. And that's really a function of very low levels of unemployment. We're still near 50-year lows. We would be supporting approximately 7,000 customers with some form of financial assistance. And the Commonwealth Bank is in a very strong position to be able to help customers. To broader issues, what's your view of the right to disconnect legislation? Is that workable? I think it's important to bear in mind that we're a 24 by 7 uh, business. Obviously, our customers rely on us for everything to be available at all times. And I think people would understand there's a, there's a test of reasonableness. You don't have the same expectations, for example, of someone who might be a, you know, a customer service specialist 
versus a cyber security expert. But in, in a general sense, should workers be able to switch off particularly low to middle income earners and say no to taking calls from their supervisors? Yeah, I have to say, I think the occurrence is very low, but in principle, absolutely. It's important for everybody to take care of their both physical and uh, mental well-being. Personally, do you ever put the phone on to do not disturb or go off the grid or are you always standing by in case the chairman calls? Well, I don't do that. And I don't think it's a reasonable expectation for someone in my role to be uh, available to disconnect. So it's, it's not a practice that I adopt, it's fair to say. A lot of bank customers seem to be worried about the future of cash or being able to get hold of cash. It seems that some banks, maybe including the CBA, have started rationing it at some banks. Is that what we're going to be seeing in the future? No, that's not what we're going to be seeing. We recognise the importance of being able to provide cash across the economy for many, many years. Of course, customers in increasing numbers are choosing to do more and more of their banking and conduct more of their lives uh, online and digitally. But we recognise the importance of making cash available to our customers. That's Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Matt Common with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe is visiting the state governor this afternoon to seek an election. Mr Rockcliffe says the defection of two Liberal MPs to the crossbench has destabilised the parliament and a fresh election is the only way to fix it. If Tasmanians go to the polls, it will be a year early, but as our reporter Alexandra Humphreys discovered, many voters are very keen to have their say. Tasmania's Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe is pushing for an election in an attempt to restore stability to the parliament. The Liberal government has endured months of difficulty managing a minority in the parliament after two Liberal backbenchers went rogue last May. Late on Tuesday, Mr Rockcliffe announced he would request the state's governor call an election. The news is still filtering out to voters in Hobart's Elizabeth Street Mall. Did you know the state government's hoping to call an election? today? Um, oh my god, I just don't know much about politics at all, no. sorry. No, it doesn't seem like we need that. No, I didn't. Sorry. The two former Liberals turned independents left the party over cost and secrecy concerns about a planned $750 million AFL stadium on Hobart's waterfront. In the central Hobart seat of Clark, the stadium is on people's minds. Do you think they should be calling an election? Yes, I do. And what issues do you think will be big to you during this election? We've got the stadium and uh, health and... uh, Ambulance and all that sort of thing, yeah. What are the issues that you think you'd be voting on? Uh, the AFL Stadium one and housing. I'm concerned about the big ones, like health and education. Um, I'm against the cable car in the stadium. The stadium is a condition of Tasmania's entry into the AFL. Tasmania's Labor opposition leader, Rebecca White, is well aware it could be a key election issue. We support Tassie having an AFL team and I'll fight incredibly hard to make sure that dream is realised. But I've also been really clear that we feel that the deal the Premier signed with the AFL is a very bad deal. Dr Kevin Bonham is an election analyst. He says there's limited polling available on how Tasmanian voters are thinking. But the likely outcome from a state election held now is another minority government. Well, if we do get a minority government as a result of this election, then it will be a minority government that the people have voted for. And that will put a different complexion on the actions of the the crossbench. So do you think, given what's gone on, that it is important that Tasmanians have a say right now? 
I, I think that the Premier was right to call to uh, seek this election under these circumstances because to carry on involves keeping a parliament that does not reflect what the voters voted for at the last election. Tasmania's House of Assembly will be expanded from 25 to 35 seats at the election. That will make it slightly easier for third parties and independent candidates to win seats. The Liberal government had been on a on a recovery path that had been rebuilding its support towards 40%. And if that's still the case, then there's good chances of the, the Liberals winning the most seats. But winning the most seats doesn't actually mean anything by itself. Uh, you still It's still the, the floor of the parliament that determines who uh, would actually govern. As this plays out, the future of Australia's last remaining Liberal government hangs in the balance. That's Alexandra Humphreys. Finally, three former Australian Army officers are beginning a journey today to paddle the River Murray from Coryong to Goolwa. The expedition will raise funds and awareness of veterans and others dealing with conditions such as PTSD. The team, nicknamed Old Vets Stomping, has already completed long treks on foot for charity. This time, Ross Boyd and Ian Errington will be kayaking and their colleague Tony Turner will be the support crew on dry land. Well, the distance is still about just under 2,500 kilometres. The time taken is going to vary with wind, water, weariness, but we think about 10 to 12 weeks. How important is this cause amongst you guys, Tony, to raise some money for Soldier On and also raise awareness about some of the issues that veterans are facing? I think I think the cause is raising awareness for uh, veterans and the issues that they are facing, and, and you're well aware, having been over there. Soldier On is one of the organisations we are supporting and fundraising for them. Ross Boyd, uh, for you, why is this journey so important? Well, I had 31 years in the Army, uh, served in the Middle East with the United Nations and then Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, I've, I've actually had to deal with soldiers, in particular soldiers who came back from these places who had been affected by it, often the partners that are seeking support first, I find. Ross, there'll be people listening who have dealt with and are dealing with uh, things like PTSD. They may have been in the mm. ADF or through mm. other experiences. If they're mm. listening in, what, what what do you say to them? It's nothing to be ashamed of. I think I think everybody who comes back from um, operational service and, and even those who have paced in any sort of traumatic situation are going to have memories of it. And there's enormous amounts of help out there and goodwill if people would just reach out and, and look for it. Ross, when we're looking at this uh, expedition down the Murray itself, what kind of uh, preparations have you made to paddle all this way? Well, for Ian and I, who are actually doing the paddling, we've spent a fair bit of time out on the water and we've been supported by uh, a very close friend and, and supporter up in Queensland who's been training us in, in rescue drills and uh, capsize drills and all those sorts of things on the kayak. But uh, a lot of it's been out on the water ourselves, just building up fitness. Ross, with all your army experience, uh, what kind of tactics are you going to employ if you see a brown snake going for a bit of a swim near the vessel? <laughs> oh, you've, you've hit on my phobia. So um, if it's heading in one direction, I'll be heading in the other. <laughs> Ian Errington, you're the other paddler on this expedition. What are you really looking forward to? Uh, look, I think the challenge, for me, it's the, uh, 
uh, personal challenge of doing something uh, a little arduous, a little bit out of the ordinary, sticking at it and uh, seeing it through to the end. How much of a sense of peace have you got from some of the other journeys that you've taken, the walks that you've done from a personal perspective? How valuable is that just to be out there doing this task? I've got to say that the people we meet along the way are you know, some of the best that we've got in this country and they're generous uh, with their spirit, uh, they're generous uh, with their hospitality and I think that's, for me, and I'm sure I speak for Ross and Tony, it's, it's, it's a significant highlight, uh, meeting Australians out on the land, uh, working hard and uh, happy to say hello and um, if we get an opportunity, have a beer uh, and have a, have a chat. That's former Australian Army officers Ian Errington, Ross Boyd and Tony Turner on their mission to paddle the length of the River Murray. And if you're a veteran or family member and you need counselling or support, you can contact Open Arms on 1800 011 046 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Since footage emerged of Barnaby Joyce lying flat on his back, swearing into his phone on a Canberra street, there's been fierce debate over whether it matters or not that an elected politician could be caught out in such a manner. Today, Radio National Breakfast and the Party Room podcast host, Patricia Carvelis, unpacks the culture of booze at Parliament House. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.